Waking up at 5 a.m. in Cambodia is inviting. A cool breeze whips through the narrow streets. A few children are already on their way biking to school. The dust has settled overnight, but street vendors already tilt umbrellas over their stands, anticipating a busy Monday along 148th. Even at dawn, the alleys provide an anticipation of the day's forthcomings. Motorbikes zipping around pedestrians, women carrying bags of fruit on their shoulders, and the blistering humidity. A small group of us, just students, traveled to an eviction site on the west bank of Phnom Penh. Our guide is a local journalist who has covered eviction scandals over the past couple years in Cambodia. We meet up with a father and six children at their home. He offers us water and fruit plates that we reluctantly take. We talk to the man through a translator. His wife has been taken. She's been gone, locked up, for about three months now. The husband has prepared a song for his children to sing at a rally downtown the next day. The song in Khmer went like this. Cambodia today is confusing. The powerful sit behind large concrete gates downtown, the poor live often evicted in slums, and an entire generation is missing. Nearly 70% of Cambodia is under 30 years old. So how did we get here today? Why is Cambodia being overrun by other Southeast Asian powers? Why are 60% of Cambodia's youth unaware of the concept of democracy? Why are passerbyers on the street afraid to talk about Prime Minister Hun Sen? Why is 5 a.m. so inviting when seven-year-old children are protesting to free their mother? And why would a group of teenage Americans fall in love with Cambodia, a country so ravaged, so poor, and corrupt that it seemingly has little to offer? In part one of the mini-series, Red Sky at Night, we will look into Cambodia's past to give you a brief sense of how Cambodia today came to be. The revolutionary Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, the American bombers, sex slaves, journalism, and more. Just ahead, Red Sky at Night, The Falling, part one of the mini-series, We Are Just Beginning. Stay with us. Next. Joseph Musameli was the U.S. ambassador to Cambodia for three years, around 2008, and once said of Cambodia, it's the most dangerous country you'll ever visit. Because you'll fall in love with it, and then it will break your heart. Musameli's statement rings true for many. He added that for Americans, all they know of Cambodia is the Khmer Rouge. Many Americans are sympathetic. They travel across the world to see Angkor Wat, to watch ordinary people stroll about their daily lives. And as author Joel Brinkley says it best, it makes them smile.
first time I traveled to Cambodia, I fell in love. I smiled. I laughed. Played soccer with the children, ate food with the local vendors. But the more I got to know Cambodia, its people, the country broke my heart. For now, we skip that final part, though. And I'll delve into why I and many other Americans love Cambodia. Cambodia to explore the mysteries that still surround a great civilization that existed here over 800 years ago. <laughs> so I dug up this old Hunter Ellis piece on ancient Cambodian civilization. The audio is a bit shaky, but stick with it. The Khmer Empire. Its capital, called Angkor, is long gone. But the temples built by this powerful civilization are some of the wonders of the world today. That's what I want to see. The Khmer Empire dominated Southeast Asia from 800 to 1432 AD. At its peak, the empire stretched from Vietnam to the Bay of Bengal and north to southwestern China. But despite its wealth and power, the Khmer Empire ultimately failed, its land and temples abandoned. I'm here to find out why. Okay, it's a little corny. But the documentary does shine some light under the collapse of the ancient Angkor civilization. Their enemy to the north, the Siamese, successfully sacked Angkor in 1431. A year later, the royal court and Khmer people abandoned this site, moving south to where Cambodia's capital of Phnom Penh is today. Invasion one possibility. Charles McCurdy, professor of anthropology at Yale, offers another. Uh, uh, Lawrence P. Briggs, who wrote a great book called The Khmer Empire, which really got me going on this. And he says uh, here, it's a long, long sentence, no amount of blows from without could account for the unfinished condition of temples and sculptures begun decades and even centuries before the fall of Angkor, or for the systematic mutilation of the image, images of the hated gods seen everywhere at Angkor, and you do see that. In short, to use a crude expression, the wonderful period of ancient Khmer civilization ended, not so much because the Khmers got licked, but because they got religion. So basically, the original pillars of the Angkor civilization were the religious beliefs of Hinduism and Mahayana Buddhism. Monarchs were regarded as god-kingly and could motivate and dictate their people to serve the throne as a divine service. However, the introduction of Theravada Buddhism in the 13th century undermined this basic foundation of the Angkor Empire. Theravada Buddhism taught people to believe in self-enlightenment, it told people to abandon worldly things, and it discouraged any superstitious beliefs. The notion of the Angorian monarch as god-king was challenged. So now we're going to fast forward to the 20th century. Cambodian civilization has been somewhat lost for hundreds of years now. However, in the early to mid-1900s, Cambodia demonstrates very slow growth. For one, in the 1930s, we see the first school was constructed. However, Cambodia generally faced many economic struggles during the same time period. Cambodians in general knew very little of the outside world, and 
radios and newspapers were rare. Fifty years later, Cambodia emerges from one of the worst human genocides seen on this planet. Our story here starts with the United States. We're getting very close to the end of the Vietnam War. Americans are getting anxious and more and more won out. Yet the U.S. continues to pursue the North Vietnamese troops they had been combating for most of the war. These troops slowly move deep into Cambodia to hide from the United States' bombings and attacks in Vietnam. Here they can recuperate and reorganize, and because of the shocking differences between Cambodia and the countries outside of it, communism was a fashionable outlet for some Cambodians. Additionally, Cambodia originally wanted to avoid the Vietnam War, and in doing so, Cambodia completely distanced itself from the United States at the onset of the conflict, halting all aid and influence. Cambodia was a hotspot for insurgents, and the U.S. knew this. From the eyes of the United States government, Cambodia was a target. From 1968 to 1970, the United States undertook a large-scale bombing campaign along the southeast border of Cambodia. In the process, the Air Force dropped nearly 3 million tons of bombs onto the countryside. The fatalities are somewhat unknown, but estimates suggest hundreds of thousands, the majority of which civilians were brutally killed. Similarly, Nixon sent 50,000 American troops onto the ground into Cambodia to fight North Vietnamese troops. The United States' short-term policy of bombing, although secretive and sending troops, was not popular back home. Americans were skeptical of Nixon and were scared of engaging in another Vietnam. As a result, the United States' foreign policy shifts towards withdrawal rather quickly. The removal of troops and influence around 1975 is completely comprehensive. American policy quickly becomes one of willful neglect as Cambodian genocide begins. The United States did not, and has not until recently, acknowledged the genocide. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. The areas in which these attacks will be launched are completely occupied and controlled by North Vietnamese forces. Our purpose is not to occupy the areas. Once enemy forces are driven out of these sanctuaries, and once their military supplies are destroyed, we will withdraw. American policy towards Cambodia was obviously modeled. As highlighted in a military briefing, the assumptions on which the American's policy is apparently based seem to rest on far more ambiguous, confusing, and contradictory evidence. Nixon also stressed that the conflict in Cambodia was merely a continuation of that in South Vietnam. Moreover, in public, Nixon highlighted that Cambodian conflict was about the United States of America saving smaller nations from the forces of totalitarianism and anarchy. The United States came, initiated the bombings, threw Lon Nol, Cambodian politician in power, and then left. The bombings not only killed thousands of civilians, but they also drove North Vietnamese troops deeper into Cambodia and into closer contact with Cambodian civilians. There, the North Vietnamese troops most likely shared their anti-American sentiments and influenced Cambodians to join forces with Pol Pot. You've most likely heard of Pol Pot before. 
He was the leader of the Khmer Rouge, the group that led the Cambodian genocide. Before the bombings, the Khmer Rouge was barely a legitimate political group, and as Pol Pot himself stated, there were fewer than 500 poorly armed guerrillas scattered across the Cambodian landscape, uncertain about their strategy, tactics, loyalty, and leaders. But as the bombs continued to fall, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge jumped at the opportunity to use American carpet bombing as a source to recruit new members, and the CIA soon learned as their main source of propaganda. With the U.S. gone, Cambodia was in Pol Pot's hands. It's hard to know where to start at this point, other than that Pol Pot wanted to send a country back to year zero, a place as dark and as gruesome as it sounds. All political and civil rights were abolished. Children were taken from their parents and placed in separate forced labor camps. Factories, schools, and universities were shut down. So were hospitals. Lawyers, doctors, teachers, engineers, scientists, and professional people in any field, including the army, were murdered, together with all of their extended families. Approximately 75% of the educated population was wiped out. Religion was banned. All leading Buddhist monks were killed almost all temples destroyed. Music and radio sets were also banned. It was possible for people to be shot simply for knowing a foreign language, wearing glasses, laughing, or even crying. People who escaped murder became unpaid laborers, working on minimum rations and for impossibly long hours. They slept and ate in uncomfortable communes, deliberately chosen to be as far as possible from their old homes. Personal relationships were discouraged. So were the expressions of affection, people soon became weak from overwork and starvation, and after that fell ill, for which there was no treatment except death. Also targeted during the genocide were minority groups, victims of the Khmer Rouge's racism. These included ethnic Chinese, Vietnamese, and Thai, and also Cambodians with Chinese, Vietnamese, or Thai ancestry. Half of the Cham Muslim population was murdered, and more than 8,000 Christians Resurgence in Cambodia planted millions and millions of landmines all over the country. These mines claimed thousands of deaths during the 80s and 70s. And a Cambodian landmine organization today estimates that there could still be upward of a million undetected landmines in Cambodia today. Cambodia has about 40,000 amputees, which per capita is one of the highest rates in the world. All in all, the Khmer Rouge slaughtered around 2 million people a quarter of Cambodia's then population, but their effects still stand for us today. American policy since then has been to scrupulously respect neutrality we have maintained a skeleton diplomatic mission of fewer than 15 in Cambodia's capital, and that only since last August. For the previous four years, from 1965 to 1969, we did not have any diplomatic mission whatever. And for the past five years, we have provided no military assistance whatever and no economic assistance to
majority of the American people want to end this war rather than to have it drag on internally. The action I have taken tonight will serve that purpose. A majority of the American people want to keep the casualties of our brave men in Vietnam at an absolute minimum. The action I take tonight is essential if we are to accomplish that goal. We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. We have made, and will continue to make, every possible effort to end this war through negotiation at the conference table rather than through more fighting in the battlefield. At 7.30 a.m. on April 17, 1975, the war in Cambodia was over. It was a unique war, for no country has ever experienced such concentrated bombing. On this, perhaps the most gentle and graceful land in all of Asia, President Nixon and Mr. Kissinger unleashed 100,000 tons of bombs, the equivalent of five Hiroshimas. The bombing was their personal decision, illegally and secretly, they bombed Cambodia, a neutral country, back to the Stone Age. And I mean Stone Age in its literal sense. Shortly after dawn on April the 17th, the bombing stopped and there was silence. Then out of the forest came the victors, the Khmer Rouge, whose power had grown out of all proportion to their numbers. They entered the capital Phnom Penh, a city most of them had never seen. They marched in disciplined Indian file through the long boulevards and the still traffic. They wore black and were mostly teenagers. And people cheered them, nervously, naively. After all, the bombing, the fighting, was over at last. After the genocide, Cambodia had to completely rebuild. The country was torn apart, families separated, displaced. Many searched for years for loved ones. The country has had to deal with thousands of orphans, millions of landmines, rebuilding an education system which was shattered, refabricating an economy which was lost, and most importantly, rediscovering the nation of Cambodia's culture. Khmer Rouge members are still being put on trial today. In fact, in 2014, in a landmark case, two chief lieutenants of Pol Pot's were sentenced to life in prison. For many victims, 35, 40 years later, this is the first step towards reconciliation. One was quoted saying, We will finally be able to mourn our relatives. It was important for us to see those who planned and ordered these crimes to be held to account. Human rights groups have estimated that more than 500,000 Cambodians died the year after the Khmer Rouge were ousted. And so while Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge directly killed over a million of Cambodians, the effects of the killings continue to last, devastate, and kill more Cambodians even today.
Today's narrative was brief but tragic, and yet it sets up stories about modern-day Cambodia that cannot be explained without reference, or at least knowledge, of the country's past. From here, we progress forward and look at modern-day Cambodia. Next episode ahead. This was part one of The Red Sky at Night, The Falling. Till next time.